Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of myth and legend. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're going to read a couple of old Japanese folktales. Going to be a fun one. They're entertaining and I think they can give us good insight into Japanese culture. Because mm-hmm. these are stories from the roots of the culture so long ago. Yeah. And a lot of times they have like good uh, life lessons built into them, you know? Absolutely. So we first did an episode like this back in episode 60. Told a couple stories and people seemed to like it. So we're going to do another one. So if you finish listening to this and want to hear a couple more stories, you can check that out. So these stories, these traditional Japanese folktales that we're going to be reading were translated into English by a woman named Ye Theodora Ozaki. They were published in 1908, and she translated a bunch of Japanese fairy tales and short stories around that time. She also had a pretty interesting life that we covered a little bit back in episode 60, so if you want to hear more about her, you can go check that out. But today, let's just jump right in and tell some stories, huh, Paul? Works for me. Cool. Do you want to go first? I wouldn't mind. Go for it. All right. <laughs> and I will be doing voices. I cannot wait to hear them. Not a ton, but a little bit. I will be reciting My Lord Bag of Rice by Ye Theodora Ozaki. So this is about a bag of rice that is a lord? No. That's my guess not, based on the not title. Not quite. Okay. Actually, there's a lot of similarities in some ways between the last story I read, Hmm. but different in a lot of ways, too. I'm intrigued. All right, here we go. Long, long ago, there lived in Japan a brave warrior known to all as Tawara Toda, or My Lord Bag of Rice. His true name was Fujiwara Hidesato. And there is a very interesting story of how he came to change his name. One day he sallied forth in search of adventures, for he had the nature of a warrior and could not bear to be idle. So he buckled on his two swords, took his huge bow, much taller than himself, in his hand, and slinging his quiver on his back, started out. He had not gone far when he came to the bridge of Setano Karashi, spanning one end of the beautiful Lake Biwa. No sooner had he set foot on the bridge than he saw lying right across his path a huge serpent dragon. Its body was so big that it looked like the trunk of a large pine tree, and it took up the whole width of the bridge. One of its huge claws rested on the parapet of one side of the bridge, while its tail lay right against the other. The monster seemed to be asleep, and as it breathed, fire and smoke came out of its nostrils. At first, Hidesato could not help feeling alarmed at the sight of this horrible reptile lying in his path, for he must either turn back or walk right over its body. He was a brave man, however, and putting aside all fear, went forward dauntlessly. Crunch, crunch. He stepped now on the dragon's body, now between its coils, 
and without even one glance backwards, he went on his way. That was a brave dude. He just got it done. He had only gone a few steps when he heard someone calling him from behind. On turning back, he was much surprised to see that the monster dragon had entirely disappeared, and in its place was a strange-looking man who was bowing most ceremoniously to the ground. It's a trap! Don't look back! (laughs) His red hair streamed over his shoulders and was surmounted by a crown in the shape of a dragon's head, and his sea-green dress was patterned with shells. Hidesato knew at once that this was no ordinary mortal, and he wondered much at the strange occurrence. Where had the dragon gone in such a short space of time? Or had it transformed itself into this man? And what did the whole thing mean? While these thoughts passed through his mind, he had come up to the man on the bridge and now addressed him. Was it you that called me just now? Yes, it was I, answered the man. I have an earnest request to make to you. Do you think you can grant it to me? If it is in my power to do so, I will, answered Hidesato. But first, tell me who you are. I am the dragon king of the lake, and my home is in these waters, just under this bridge. And what is it that you have to ask of me, said Hidesato? I want you to kill my mortal enemy, the centipede. Shouldn't have turned back. (laughs) And now he's roped into this whole thing. And those Japanese centipedes are freaking huge and terrifying. You have no idea. (laughs) The centipede who lives on the mountain beyond. And the dragon king pointed to a high peak on the opposite shore of the lake. I have lived now for many years in this lake, and I have a large family of children and grandchildren. For some time past, we have lived in terror, for a monster centipede has discovered our home, and night after night, it comes and carries off one of my family. I am powerless to save them. If it goes on much longer like this, Not only shall I lose all of my children, but I myself must fall a victim to the monster. I am therefore very unhappy, and in my extremity I determined to ask the help of a human being. For many days with this intention I have waited on the bridge in the shape of the horrible serpent dragon that you saw, in the hope that some strong, brave man would come along. But all who came this way, as soon as they saw me, were terrified and ran away as fast as they could. You are the first man I have found able to look at me without fear, so I knew at once that you were a man of great courage. I beg you to have pity upon me. Will you not help me and kill my enemy, the centipede? Yikes. Getting punished for his bravery. He goes for the flattery there. He's trying to like pull all the strings to get this guy to help him. Mm -hmm. It's none of Hidesato's business at all. 
but... You didn't even mention a reward or anything, right? No, nothing. He's just asking for help. Hidesato felt very sorry for the Dragon King on hearing his story and readily promised to do what he could to help him. Nice guy. Because he's just a stand-up guy. And he's looking for adventure. The warrior asked where the centipede lived so that he might attack the creature at once. The Dragon King replied that its home was on the mountain Mikami, but that as it came every night at a certain hour to the palace of the lake, it would be better to wait till then. So Hidesato was conducted to the palace of the Dragon King under the bridge. Strange to say, as he followed his host downward, the waters parted to let them pass, and his clothes did not even feel damp as he passed through the flood. Never had Hidesato seen anything so beautiful as this palace built of white marble beneath the lake. He had often heard of the Sea King's palace at the bottom of the sea, where all the servants and retainers were saltwater fishes. But here was a magnificent building in the heart of Lake Biwa. The dainty goldfishes, red carp, and silvery trout waited upon the Dragon King and his guests. Yeah, this definitely is reminding me of the last story you told. Right? Right? Fish retainers. All about the dragon king of the sea. I guess mm-hmm. this is a lake dragon king rather than the sea dragon king. I don't know if it's supposed to be the same figure or not. I also found it interesting that the saltwater fishes are his servants. And he lives in a lake. It specifically said the saltwater fishes are all his servants. Interesting. Maybe as we get deeper into the story, there'll be something that helps us understand that. You already know, don't you? Um, we'll see. Okay. I gotta reread it. We'll we'll see. I have an idea. Okay. I don't want to ruin it, though. So we'll get there. Hidesato was astonished at the feast that was spread for him. The dishes were crystallized lotus leaves and flowers, and the chopsticks were of the rarest ebony. As soon as they sat down, the sliding doors opened, and ten lovely goldfish dancers came out and behind them followed ten red carp musicians with the koto and the shamisen. Thus the hours flew by till midnight, and the beautiful music and dancing had banished all thoughts of the centipede. The dragon king was about to pledge the warrior in a fresh cup of wine when the palace was suddenly shaken by a tramp, tramp, as if a mighty army had begun to march not far away. You mean like maybe a hundred legs marching at the same time? Could be. Hidesato and his host both rose to their feet and rushed to the balcony, and the warrior saw on the opposite mountain two great balls of glowing fire coming nearer and nearer. The dragon king stood by the warrior's side, trembling with fear. The centipede, the centipede, those two balls of fire are its eyes. It's coming for its prey. Now is the time to kill it. Hidesato looked where his host had pointed, and in the dim light of the starlit evening, behind those two balls of fire, he saw the long body of an enormous centipede winding round the mountains, and the light in its hundred feet 
glowed like so many distant lanterns moving slowly towards the shore. Gross. I can imagine. (laughs) Centipedes are just so gross, you know? Yeah, bugs can seem gross because they're so different. No, No, Paul, you're being too generous to the centipede. Centipedes are disgusting. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know what you and centipedes have in your history. When but... I lived in Boston, in these, you know, 100-year-old apartments, lots of centipedes, lots of legs flying around, and they're so fast. Ugh. Well, we hit a nerve with Jason here today. Yeah. We all learned something about Jason. <laughs> Sorry. I, okay, I, I can appreciate that centipedes are, you know, living things just like anything else, and they deserve respect, but... Just leave me alone, please, centipedes. We can live in peace separate from each other. I was at work the other day, and someone was like, oh, hey, look at this spider. And I looked over, and there's a big spider. I was like, oh, cool. And then, wham, they just smashed it. (laughs) Oh, spider bro. Shouldn't have come inside, I guess. Yeah. Anyways, where were we here? We were talking about a giant freaking centipede oh, yeah, this giant winding around centipede. mountains. Like just that image in my yeah. head is not, I don't like it. Well, Hidesato showed not the least sign of fear. He tried to calm the Dragon King. Don't be afraid. I shall surely kill the centipede. Just bring me my bow and arrows. The Dragon King did as he was bid. And the warrior noticed that he had only three arrows left in his quiver. He took the bow and, fitting an arrow to the notch, took careful aim and let fly. The arrow hit the centipede right in the middle of its head, but instead of penetrating, it glanced off harmless and fell to the ground. Nothing daunted, Hidesato took another arrow, fitted it to the notch of the bow, and let it fly. Again, the arrow struck the mark. It struck the centipede right in the middle of its head, only to glance off and fall to the ground. The centipede was invulnerable to weapons. Yeah, those exoskeletons. Don't mess with bugs. Yeah. I'm glad most bugs are really small. It'd be so scary if they were bigger. Totally. (laughs) When the Dragon King saw that even his brave warrior's arrows were powerless to kill the centipede, he lost heart and began to tremble with fear. The warrior saw that he had now only one arrow left in his quiver, and if this one failed, he could not kill the centipede. He looked across the waters. The huge reptile had wound its horrible body seven times round the mountain and would soon come down to the lake. It does say reptile there. I was about to say... I think it's a translation thing where I don't know if in Japan, reptiles and centipedes, at least in 1908, were you referred to with the same word or they might not have had those words and they had their own words that overlapped like that. But Ye translated it as reptile. Okay. We would call it an insect today. Yeah. But over 100 years since these things were written, there's a few language things like that. Interesting. Just want to point that out. I'm not crazy. I thought I missed something huge for a second. I'm like, what are we talking about? We're talking about the centipede. Okay. Wrapped seven times around the mountain, by the way. That's a big That's a big centipede. centipede. <laughs> nearer and nearer gleamed the fireballs of eyes, 
and the light of its hundred feet begin to throw reflections in the still waters of the lake. Then suddenly, the warrior remembered that he had heard that human saliva was deadly to centipedes. So he wooed the centipede and made out with no. That's not that's not how this goes. <laughs> how does how does something like that Well, you've never spit on a centipede? Well, like does somebody lick a centipede and find out that it died or something? Like how Obviously where does that come they from? spit on it. Come on, bro. Don't be gross. Someone's probably eaten centipedes before though. You get you get hungry, might have protein or something. Yeah, I mean I guess that makes sense. I don't know if this is true or not. That saliva is bad for centipedes. Yeah, yeah. Human saliva and centipedes don't mix. Next time you see a centipede, try it out and report back. That goes for all so, our listeners. Someone go spit on a centipede <laughs> for us. Yeah. <laughs> so Hidesato had heard that human saliva was deadly to centipedes, but this was no ordinary centipede. This was so monstrous that even to think of such a creature made one creep with horror. See? Yeah, they get me. Whoever these people are. <laughs> yeah, not just you, I guess. Hidesato yeah. determined to try his last chance. So taking his last arrow and first putting the end of it in his mouth, he fitted the notch to his bow and took careful aim once more and let it fly. This time, the arrow hit the centipede right in the middle of its head, but instead of glancing off harmlessly as before, it struck home to the creature's brain. Then with a convulsive shudder, the centipede's body stopped moving, and the fiery light of its great eyes and the hundred feet darkened to a dull glare like the sunset on a stormy day and then went out into blackness. A great darkness now overspread the heavens. The thunder rolled, and the lightning flashed, and the wind roared in fury, and it seemed as if the world were coming to an end. The dragon king and his children, and the retainers, all crouched in different parts of the palace, frightened to death, for the building was shaken to its foundation. At last, the dreadful night was over. Day dawned beautiful and clear. The centipede was gone from the mountain. Then Hidesato called to the dragon king to come out with him on the balcony, for the centipede was dead and he had no more to fear. Then all of the inhabitants of the palace came out with joy, and Hidesato pointed to the lake. There lay the body of the dead centipede, floating on the water, which was dyed red with its blood. Do centipedes have red blood? Someone step on a centipede for us. (laughs) (laughs) We need to crowdsource some research. The gratitude of the Dragon King knew no bounds. The whole family came and bowed down before the warrior, calling him their preserver and the bravest warrior in all of Japan. Pretty nice compliments. Yeah, that must feel good. But he deserves it. Totally. Another feast was prepared, more sumptuous than the first. All kinds of fish, prepared in every imaginable way, 
raw, steamed, stewed, boiled, roasted, served on coral trays and crystal dishes were put before him. And the wine was the best that he Sato had ever tasted in his life. So at first that sounds cannibalistic. I'm starting to think they eat the freshwater fish and the saltwater fish run the show. And they're like, no, no, the freshwater fish are different. We eat them. I don't, I have no Maybe, idea if that's like the, true or not. The saltwater fish are smarter. They're more... Uh, yeah, they're, they're running the show. They're yeah. the ones with power. I don't know. But all these fish are eating fish. Yeah, but fish do eat fish. You right, know? but since they eat all kinds of fish. All kinds but their own, hopefully. I don't know. I mean, a lot of fish eat their babies, you know? Yeah, there probably are a lot of cannibalistic fish. Fish, fish are just... They're monsters. Barely. <laughs> fish can't trust other fish. All the other things they could eat, they're feasting on fish. Mm-hmm. Well, what else is there down there? <laughs> to add to the beauty of everything, the sun shone brightly, the lake glittered like a liquid diamond, and the palace was a thousand times more beautiful day than by night. His host tried to persuade the warrior to stay a few days, but Hide Sato insisted on going home, saying that he had now finished what he had come to do and must return. The Dragon King and his family were all very sorry to have him leave so soon, but since he would go, they begged him to accept a few small presents, so they said, in token of their gratitude to him for delivering them forever from their horrible enemy, the Centipede. This is before the sequel where the Centipede's mate comes down. (laughs) (laughs) As the warriors stood in the porch, taking leave, a train of fish was suddenly transformed into a retinue of men, all wearing ceremonial robes, and the dragon's crown on their heads to show that they were servants of the great dragon king. The presents that they carried were as follows. First, a large bronze bell. Second, a bag of rice. I was waiting for that bag of rice. Jeez. It finally showed up. <laughs> Third, a roll of silk. Fourth, a cooking pot. And fifth, a bell. Another nondescript bell. <laughs> I was going to say, there was already a bell, <laughs> yeah, right? There's a large bronze bell, and now there's a bell. Okay. Hidesato did not want to accept all these presents, but the Dragon King insisted. He could not well refuse. The Dragon King himself accompanied the warrior as far as the bridge and then took leave of him with many bows and good wishes, leaving the procession of servants to accompany Hidesato home with his presence. The warrior's household and servants had been very much concerned when they found that he did not return the night before, but they finally concluded that he had been kept by the violent storm and had taken shelter somewhere. When the servants on the watch for his return caught sight of him, they called to everyone that he was approaching, and the whole household turned out to meet him, wondering much what the retinue of men bearing presents and banners that followed him could mean. As soon as the Dragon King's retainers had put down the presents, they vanished, and Hidesato told all that had happened to him. The presents which he had received from the grateful Dragon King were found to be of magic power. The bell only was ordinary, and as Hidosato had no use for it, he presented it to the temple nearby where it was hung up 
to boom out the hour of the day over the surrounding neighborhood. Hmm. It doesn't say which bell that was. I was wondering. I'm assuming the big one, but it only ever mentions one bell after that. Yeah, I was also wondering if it would mention the temple that was at. Like maybe there's a temple that you could still visit from yeah. the story or something. It doesn't in the story. I wouldn't be too surprised if there's some temple out there somewhere or some shrine somewhere that that has a bell from a dragon king or something. Yeah, or that says that it's from this specific story. Yeah. That'd be cool. I should look into that. The single bag of rice, however much was taken from it day after day for the meals of the knight and his whole family, never grew less. The supply in the bag was inexhaustible. That's nice to have. Yeah. Also of note there, they call him a knight there for the only time in the whole story. They call him a warrior mm-hmm. at a bunch of other points. So, <laughs> And remember from the samurai episode, we talked about how samurai were paid in bags of rice. Yeah. Like rice was everything. Like if you had rice, you had power, you had wealth. Hidesato had endless rice. Like we almost can't comprehend today what that meant at that time. Yeah, it's like being infinitely rich. Yeah, it's like having an endless bank account today would be. No matter how much you charged, you never ran out of money. Yeah. The roll of silk, too, never grew shorter. Though time after time, long pieces were cut off to make the warrior a new suit of clothes to go to Corden at the new year. The cooking pot was wonderful, too. No matter what was put in it, it cooked deliciously whatever was wanted without any firing. A truly very economical saucepan. The fame of Hidesato's fortune spread far and wide, and as there was no need for him to spend money on rice, milk, or firing, he became very rich and prosperous, and was henceforth known as my lord, Bag of Rice. (laughs) The end. That's awesome. Good story, Paul. Thank you. Somehow did two stories about sea dragon kings, but I liked both of them. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out like the moral of this story. Is it just about being brave and willing to help people, I guess? Yeah, I mean, he it's like a hero story. He was brave. He helped those in need without reward being promised. And then he tried to refuse such a reward but he got rewarded anyways. It's almost like a karmic tale of like you live virtuously and you will be rewarded. Yeah, he's just a really solid dude, a good role model. Yeah, and everything works out for him. Mm -hmm. So be like him and your life will be good. Cool. I dig it. I'm really excited to hear your story now. Well, I hope you find it as interesting as I found yours. I'm reading The Story of the Man Who Did Not Wish to Die. All right, this, this could be interesting. I didn't even consider the voices. I'm not sure how many voices there are that I need to do. Let's see. Wing it. I want your natural, <clears throat> raw acting reactions. Oh boy. Show me what you got, Jason. I don't know if I got that. Well, here we go. Long, long ago, there lived a man called Sentaro. His surname meant millionaire, but although he was not so rich as all that, he was still very far removed from being poor. 
He had inherited a small fortune from his father and lived on this, spending his time carelessly without any serious thoughts of work till he was about 32 years of age. One day, without any reason whatsoever, the thought of death and sickness came to him. The idea of falling ill or dying made him very wretched, which I guess means worried. Midlife crisis. (laughs) Yeah. I should like... Oh, wait. Okay, here, I need to do a a voice, I guess. I want to hear how worried he is. I should like to live. Yes. He said to himself, till I am five or six hundred years old at least, free from all sickness. The ordinary span of a man's life is very short. I hope I can remember how that voice goes for the rest of the story. (laughs) He wondered whether it were possible, by living simply and frugally henceforth, to prolong his life as long as he wished. He knew there were many stories in ancient history of emperors who had lived a thousand years, and there was a princess of Yamato who, it was said, lived to the age of 500. This was the latest story of a very long life record. Sentaro had often heard the tale of the Chinese king named Shinoshiko. He was one of the most able and powerful rulers in Chinese history. He built all the large palaces and also the famous Great Wall of China. He had everything in the world he could wish for, but in spite of all his happiness and the luxury and splendor of his court, the wisdom of his counselors and the glory of his reign, he was miserable because he knew that one day he must die and leave it all. When Shin no Shiko went to bed at night, when he rose in the morning, as he went through his day, the thought of death was always with him. He could not get away from it. Ah, if only he could find the elixir of life, he would be happy. The emperor at last called a meeting of his courtiers and asked them all if they could not find for him the elixir of life, of which he had so often read and heard. One old courtier, Jofuku by name, said that far away across the seas there was a country called Horizon, and that certain hermits lived there who possessed the secret of the elixir of life. Whoever drank of this wonderful draft lived forever. The emperor ordered Jofuku to set out for the land of Horizon to find the hermits and to bring him back a vial of the magic elixir. He gave Jofuku one of his best junks, fitted it out for him, and loaded it with great quantities of treasures and precious stones for Jofuku to take as presents to the hermits. Junk being a common type of Chinese ship. Oh, I had no idea what that was about. Thank you. I also noticed that vial is spelled P-H-I-A-L, or is that a different word? I'd never seen that word before. File, vial. I've never never seen that spelling before. Maybe it's an old-timey thing. Yeah, 1908, who knows? Yeah. Jofuku sailed for the land of Horizon, but he never returned to the waiting emperor. But ever since that time, Mount Fuji has been said to be the fabled Horizon and the home of hermits who had the secret of the elixir, and Jofuku has been worshipped as their patron god. Okay, so... Just to clarify, we started out talking about this guy, Sentaro, the rich guy that doesn't want to die. And then we talked about this, this ancient Chinese emperor. And just so you know, now we're going back to Sentaro, just so people don't get confused there. Because I was getting a little confused. Got it. Okay. 
Now, Sentaro determined to set out to find the hermits, and if he could, to become one, so that he might obtain the water of perpetual life. He remembered that as a child he had been told that not only did these hermits live on Mount Fuji, but that they were said to inhabit all the very high peaks. So he left his old home to the care of his relatives and started out on his quest. He traveled through all the mountainous regions of the land, climbing to the tops of the highest peaks, but never a hermit did he find. At last, after wandering in a region for many days, he met a hunter. Can you tell me? Asked Sentaro. Is that close? Is that? Yeah, it's close because he's not quite as panicked in the moment as he was. Okay. Can you tell me where the hermits live who have the elixir of life? No, said the hunter. I can't tell you where such hermits live, but there is a notorious robber living in these parts. It's said that he is chief of a band of 200 followers. This odd answer irritated Centaro very much, and he thought how foolish it was to waste more time in looking for the hermits in this way. So he decided to go at once to the shrine of Johuku, who is worshipped as the patron god of the hermits in the south of Japan. Centaro reached the shrine and prayed for seven days, entreating Johuku to show him the way to a hermit who could give him what he wanted so much to find. At midnight of the seventh day, as Sentaro knelt in the temple, the door of the innermost shrine flew open and Jofuku appeared in a luminous cloud and calling to Sentaro to come nearer, spoke thus. Oh crap, now I need to sound like a... Where's your God voice? Your desire is a very selfish one and cannot... No. No. That was good. I liked that. <laughs> I don't think he's supposed to be that angry, though. I like the, I like the power. I like the boominess. I was it's trying to a little project. Too aggressive. Yeah. Your desire is a very selfish one and cannot be easily granted. You think that you would like to become a hermit so as to find the elixir of life. Do you know how hard a hermit's life is? A hermit is only allowed to eat fruit and berries and the bark of pine trees. A hermit must cut himself off from the world so that his heart may become as pure as gold and free from every earthly desire. Gradually, after following these strict rules, the hermit ceases to feel hunger or cold or heat, and his body becomes so light that he can ride on a crane or a carp and can walk on water without getting his feet wet. Wow. You, Sentaro, are fond of good living and of every comfort. You are not even like an ordinary man, for you are exceptionally idle and more sensitive to heat and cold than most people. You would never be able to go barefoot or to wear only one thin dress in the wintertime. Do you think that you would ever have the patience or the endurance to live a hermit's life? In answer to your prayer, however, I will help you in another way. I will send you to the country of perpetual life, where death never comes, where the people live forever. 
Centaro's getting what he wanted. I'm excited to see where this is going. <laughs> Saying this, Joe Fuku put into Centaro's hand a little crane made of paper, telling him to sit on his back and it would carry him there. I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. A little origami crane. Centaro obeyed wonderingly. The crane grew large enough for him to ride on it with comfort. It then spread its wings, rose high in the air, and flew away over the mountains right out to sea. Isn't that awesome? He's got a little origami crane he can stick in his pocket and it can fly him anywhere. That's so cool. Yeah. Centaro was at first quite frightened, but by degrees he grew accustomed to the swift flight through the air. On and on they went for thousands of miles. The bird never stopped for rest or food, but as it was a paper bird, it doubtless did not require any nourishment, and strange to say, neither did Centaro. After several days, they reached an island. The crane flew some distance inland and then alighted. As soon as Centaro got down from the bird's back, the crane folded up of its own accord and flew into his pocket. Magical. Now, Centaro began to look about him wonderingly, curious to see what the country of perpetual life was like. He walked first round about the country and then through the town. Everything was, of course, quite strange and different from his own land, but both the land and the people seemed prosperous, so he decided that it would be good for him to stay there and took up lodgings at one of the hotels. The proprietor was a kind man, and when Centaro told him that he was a stranger and had come to live there, he promised to arrange everything that was necessary with the governor of the city concerning Centaro's sojourn there. He even found a house for his guest, and in this way, Centaro obtained his great wish and became a resident in the country of perpetual life. The end. All right, good for him. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not the end. There's no catch? <laughs> There's always a catch. Within the memory of all the islanders, no man had ever died there, and sickness was a thing unknown. Priests had come over from India and China and told them of a beautiful country called Paradise, where happiness and bliss and contentment fill all men's hearts, but its gates could only be reached by dying. This tradition was handed down for ages from generation to generation but none knew exactly what death was, except that it led to paradise. Quite unlike Centaro and other ordinary people, instead of having a great dread of death, they all, both rich and poor, longed for it as something good and desirable. They were all tired of their long, long lives and longed to go to the happy land of contentment called paradise of which the priests had told them centuries ago. All this, Centaro soon found out by talking to the islanders. He found himself, according to his ideas, in the land of topsy-turvydom. <laughs> Everything was upside down. He had wished to escape from dying. He had come to the land of perpetual life with great relief and joy, only to find that the inhabitants themselves, doomed never to die, would consider it bliss to find death. What he had hitherto considered poison, these people ate as good food. And all the things to which he had been accustomed as food, they rejected. Whenever any merchants from other countries arrived, 
the rich people rushed to them, eager to buy poisons. <laughs> These they swallowed eagerly, hoping for death to come so that they might go to paradise. But what were deadly poisons in other lands were without effect in this strange place, and people who swallowed them with the hope of dying only found that in a short time they felt better in health instead of worse. <laughs> Vainly they tried to imagine what death could be like. The wealthy would have given all their money and all their goods if they could but shorten their lives to two or three hundred years even. Without any change to live on forever, seemed to this people wearisome and sad. In the chemist shops, there was a drug which was in constant demand because after using it for a hundred years, it was supposed to turn the hair slightly gray and to bring about disorders of the stomach. Doesn't that sound great? That sounds awful. Centaur was astonished to find that the poisonous globe fish was served up in restaurants as a delectable dish and hawkers in the streets went about selling sauces made of Spanish flies. He never saw anyone ill after eating these horrible things, nor did he ever see anyone with as much as a cold. Globefish? What do you think that is? Pufferfish? That was my thought. It's round like a globe, and it's super poisonous. Yeah. Not sure about Spanish flies. Eating flies can get you sick. Okay, everybody, I looked it up. Spanish flies. The Spanish fly is the source of the terpenoid cantharidin, a toxic blistering agent once used as an aphrodisiac. There you go. Toxic aphrodisiac. The things people do to get turned on. Yeah. Centaro was delighted. He said to himself that he would never grow tired of living and that he considered it profane to wish for death. He was the only happy man on the island. <laughs> For his part, he wished to live thousands of years and to enjoy life. He set himself up in business and for the present never even dreamed of going back to his native land. As years went by, however, things did not go as smoothly as at first. He had heavy losses in business and several times some affairs went wrong with his neighbors. This caused him great annoyance. Time passed like the flight of an arrow for him, for he was busy from morning till night. Three hundred years went by in this monotonous way, and then at last he began to grow tired of life in this country, and he longed to see his own land and his old home. However long he lived there, life would always be the same, so was it not foolish and wearisome to stay on here forever? Sentaro, in his wish to escape from the country of perpetual life, recollected Jofuku, who had helped him before when he was wishing to escape from death, and he prayed to the saint to bring him back to his own land again. No sooner did he pray than the paper crane popped out of his pocket. Centaur was amazed to see that it had remained undamaged for all these years. Once more, the bird grew and grew till it was large enough for him to mount it. As he did so, the bird spread its wings and flew, swiftly out across the sea in the direction of Japan. Such was the willfulness of the man's nature that he looked back and regretted all he had left behind. This guy can't make up his mind. He tried to stop the bird in vain. The crane held on its way for thousands of miles across the ocean. Then, a storm came on, and the wonderful paper crane got damp 
crumpled up and fell into the sea. Centauro fell with it. Very much frightened at the thought of being drowned, he cried out loudly to Jofuku to save him. He's asking a little too much of Jofuku, I think. He looked round, but there was no ship in sight. He swallowed a quantity of seawater, which only increased his miserable plight. While he was thus struggling to keep himself afloat, he saw a monstrous shark swimming towards him. As it came nearer, it opened its huge mouth, ready to devour him. Centaro was all but paralyzed with fear now that he felt his end so near, and screamed out as loudly as ever he could to Jofuku to come and rescue him. Lo and behold, Centaro was awakened by his own screams to find that during his long prayer, he had fallen asleep before the shrine, and that all his extraordinary and frightful adventures had been only a wild dream. He was in a cold perspiration with fright and utterly bewildered. Isn't that funny? Cold perspiration? He was in a cold sweat? Yep. (laughs) Never heard it said that way. (laughs) Suddenly, a bright light came towards him, and in the light stood a messenger. The messenger held a book in his hand and spoke to Centaro. Need a new voice here. I am sent to you by Jofuku, who in answer to your prayer has permitted you in a dream to see the land of perpetual life. But you grew weary of living there and begged to be allowed to return to your native land so that you might die. Jofuku, so that he might try you, allowed you to drop into the sea and then sent a shark to swallow you up. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine this guy's enjoying delivering this message. (laughs) Your desire for death was not real, for even at that moment you cried out loudly and shouted for help. It is also vain for you to wish to become a hermit or to find the elixir of life. These things are not for such as you. Your life is not austere enough. It is best for you to go back to your paternal home and to live a good and industrious life. I can't decide if I'm doing an accent here or not. (laughs) Never neglect to keep the anniversaries of your ancestors and make it your duty to provide for your children's future. Thus will you live to a good old age and be happy. But give up the vain desire to escape death, for no man can do that. And by this time, you have surely found out that even when selfish desires are granted, they do not bring happiness. In this book I give you, there are many precepts good for you to know. If you study them, you will be guided in the way that I have pointed out to you. The angel, I guess that was an angel voice. Oh, okay. I said messenger before. The angel disappeared as soon as he had finished speaking, and Centaro took the lesson to heart. With the book in his hand, he returned to his old home, and giving up all his old vain wishes, tried to live a good and useful life, and to observe the lessons taught him in the book, and he and his house prospered henceforth. The end. Not a joke this time. All right. He finally learned to cherish life instead of waste it worrying about what's going to come in the future. Yeah. Live in the moment. Yeah, I like the lesson of this story. Yeah, dude's kind of annoying, but he figured it out eventually with a little help. Yeah. 
Did this remind you of anything? Have you heard a story like this before, you think? Mm. I mean, I'd, I'd heard the story of the Chinese emperor before. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's well known. Hmm. He actually quite possibly died from mercury poisoning because he was ingesting mercury, thinking that that would help him live longer because it preserves some things. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I had never heard of that. But the story reminded me of an episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation. Do you remember one where Picard like lives a whole life? Yes. But it just ends up being a dream? That's a fantastic life. It's not quite a dream. It's an experience brought on by some alien probe that like lets him live a life in their civilization so he would know about them. Yeah, yeah. But, no, but yeah, just the idea yeah. of like living this huge, you know, lifelong experience and then finding out, oh, yeah, that's he, just a lesson I'm supposed to learn. He basically faints and like wakes up a few minutes later and like he just lived an entire life in his head. Yeah. I think that was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Oh, it's every, it's one of everybody's favorites. It's so good. Yeah. Well, hope you enjoyed these stories. I enjoyed telling mine and listening to Paul's, that's for sure. I enjoyed yours as well. Thank you. Thank you. I did my best with the voices. Yeah, it was good. Thanks. I liked it. I guess that's the end of the episode. If you want to let us know what you thought of this episode, there are more stories that we could read in the future if you liked it. So uh, you can reach us uh, on our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com, or you could send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And if you really liked the episode, we would love it if you could uh, spare a few moments to go on to your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review and or rating. That would be awesome. Yeah. What are we talking about next time, Paul? Join us on the next episode where we are going to be talking about Japanese whiskey. Gotta love whiskey. Super excited for this one. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, and this has been requested by at least a couple people too yeah we always knew we were going to do this episode like, yeah. this was always coming yeah japan is famous for having excellent whiskey and whiskey is excellent so this is gonna be a double <laughs> excellent episode exactly can't wait thanks for listening see you next time